Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Collaborative Practice 301. In this presentation, the panel will be providing a quick recap of parts one and two of this series focused on collaborative practice and family law, followed by an extended Q&A with questions we've received in advance from our audience members. So in this session, our presenters will revisit the following topics. What the heck is collaborative practice? Collaborative practice training? The CP participation agreement? Family and financial neutrals? The power of a full team? the role of experts and reports, runaway trains, anointment for high conflict litigation, saving the golden goose, CP and family run businesses, impasse and hitting a wall and selling collaborative practice. And as I mentioned, uh, we, that will be followed by a Q&A. And as we are presenting remotely and during a thunderstorm at that, we apologize in advance for any tech issues that may arise as a result, uh, but we will certainly do our best to try to mitigate any disruptions to the presentation today. And also just another quick note before we get into our introductions, as always, we ask our audience to keep in mind that this presentation is intended to provide general information and should not be considered legal advice. And now I would love to take the opportunity to tell you a little bit about our speakers before I pass things over to them to get started with the presentation. So first, we have Brian Galbraith, who is the owner of Galbraith Family Law, which has six offices in Ontario and 16 collaborative lawyers. Brian is the president of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals and has served on its board for several years. Brian has helped train hundreds of collaborative professionals and conducted workshops on the international stage. Brian has served on the board of the Ontario Association of Collaborative Professionals and was instrumental in its formation. Brian was the chair of the Trainers Committee in Ontario for several years, and he continues to serve as the president of his local practice group. Brian is also a mediator, and most importantly, Brian is the father of five children and grandfather to two so far. He lives on Lake Simcoe between Barry and Aurelia with his wife, Nicole, and their two young children. Next, we have Carrie, and Carrie Heinzel is the founder of Fair Fairmore Family Law Financial Solutions, and Fairmore offers independent, fact-based financial analytics and settlement insights to individuals and couples working through separation and divorce. Carrie is an active collaborator collaborative um, process trainer, co-teaching the introductory program for new collaborative professionals and advanced level trainings for the seasoned practitioner. Carrie has taught statistics, research methodologies and psychology at, at college and university levels. In addition, Carrie has presented at conferences for the Ontario Association of Collaborative Professionals, Family Dispute Resolution Institute of Ontario Annual Conference and the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals. Jonathan Painter is a registered social worker and psychotherapist who works in the family court system, completing custody and access assessments, parenting capacity assessments, and youth court assessments. He specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and couples counseling and holds certificates in collaborative family law, advanced family mediation, family arbitration, domestic violence screening, offender relapse prevention, and actuarial assessment of risk. Jonathan is on the board of directors of the Ontario Association for Family Mediation, holding the executive position as secretary of the board, as well as being chair of the accreditation and the course approval committees. Next, we have David, and David Cahill is an associate family lawyer and accredited family mediator. He was called to the bar in 2018 and since has been practicing exclusively in family law. David assists clients with peaceful, respectful, out-of-court resolution of their parenting support and property issues, and David's role is to guide clients through their period of transition with separation and divorce. 
He does so by facilitating a process that empowers his clients to attain a durable and workable resolution. And David strongly believes that resolving family law issues through negotiation, mediation, and or collaborative law will always be preferable to resolving them through litigation. Next, we have Russell Alexander, and Russell is the founder and senior partner at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With 25 years of experience, he uses his knowledge and expertise to surface clients in all aspects of family law and helps them in coping with the difficulties of separation and divorce, the division of assets such as homes and pensions, and the calculation and enforcement of child and support, child and spousal support. He uses his experience to create unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward and supports them through the transition of divorce and separation. And on that note, I will let Russell take it away from here. Mute. Got it. Thanks for those kind words. Let's start with our first poll. Um, quite the dream team you put together today, Shannon. Thank you so much. Uh, while we're waiting, I have to agree. <laughs> while we're waiting for the poll, Shannon's going to flip up a, a slide, just a bit, some CP training we've got coming up. Um, take a look at it. We have some spots available still. So, and I think we're going to have a discount uh, code for people who are attending today if you want to take the training. Please provide us with your feedback. We're going to be running polls throughout today's presentation. You'll get a survey at the end of today's presentation. Let us know what we're doing well, what we can do better. This is an advanced topic of collaborative practice. So the recap is going to be a real quick one, two minute summary. If you want to learn more, we have CP 101, CP 201 podcasts and a bunch of other information if you want the basic details. The CP training is uh, available for Canadians who want to become uh, collaborative be trained, but it's also available this year for Americans. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, we we the Americans tend to have uh, shorter courses, and uh, so what we've done is uh, developed our course so that it it can be the short course can be taken by the Americans, and that will uh, qualify them for um, to practice in their jurisdiction. And in Ontario, we require a longer program, which goes into more in depth, more role plays. Uh, more uh, deeper learning. And so uh, people who want to practice collaboratively would take the full uh, full eight, eight sessions. They're, it's all done online on Zoom. They're, the sessions are four hours each day. And uh, those are the dates that are on the screen there, Russ. So it's the best of both worlds. If you're Canadian or a U.S. practitioner, you can get your training online yep. from home. Let's see who our audience is today. Lawyer practicing family law, 65%. Other area law, 18%. Uh, another professional, 15%. Going through a separation and divorce, uh, 3%. So thank you, audience, for answering. I think we're going to have one more quick poll, and then we're going to get into our recap. So we'll do this one quickly. Do you have collaborative practice training? And we'll give everybody just a moment to fill this out. Then we're going to go into our recap. Again, the recap is just a quick run through. We've got more details in the show notes and more programs you can watch. But today's focus being an advanced se session is we want to get, dive deep into the Q&A. So put your Q&A in, um, in the chat box. We're going to get to all the Q&As that we can. We've got some that came in in advance and we're going to answer those today as well. All right, let's see who our audience is, please. All right. No, 83%. Yes, 17%. Okay, well, you're in the right place if you want to learn about collaborative practice. 
So let's do a recap of CP201, CP101, the basics. What the heck is collaborative practice? Brian, how about it? Well, collaborative practice is a fantastic way for clients to resolve their divorce and separation related issues without going to court. That's what it's all about is helping clients resolve their issues without having to ask a judge or an arbitrator to decide for them. And so it's an interdisciplinary process. Uh, each party has their own client, uh, own lawyer, and then they share together a family professional who is someone with a mental health background, such as Jonathan, who can help them with it. Um, uh, communication issues, prepare them for meetings uh, so they can get through the meetings without being triggered and help them develop a parenting plan and help them with communications and so on. They, they're really uh, important to the process that that person is one person shared, the cost of which is shared by the parties equally usually. And then there's a, a financial professional like Carrie and uh, that person accumulates all of the financial disclosure uh, and helps discuss the equalization issues and uh, support issues uh, with both parties. So the two um, neutrals uh, bring the interdisciplinary nature uh, to the process, which is unique. We don't see that in mediation or, or in any other process or the court process. It's, it's a team of professionals working together to help the clients uh, resolve the case. And the hallmark of the process is the disqualification clause. And that's a, there's an agreement that is signed at the beginning that by the parties and the professionals that says, we're not going to go to court. And if the matter ends up in court, uh, uh, then you have to start over with new professionals. And the beauty of that is it really transforms everyone into a deep commitment for to settlement. Yeah, we're going to take some questions about the disqualification clause. Usually that's a big um, rub for lawyers and clients, but we're going to get into that a little bit deeper later. Sure. Uh, Brian talked briefly about the training. Uh, Carrie, can you elaborate a little bit more? Why do we need training? Why can't I just go in and do things collaboratively? Um, you know, what, what's this all about? You know, th that, that's a great question, Russ. Really, we want to do collaborative practice training. You know, Laura saying I'm going to do, you know, small C collaborative, right? Yeah. It, it's BS. You know, they're just, they're not, they don't have the training. They don't even know what we're talking about. So, right? Well, exactly. To, to really do collaborative justice, you really do need to do the training. Um, I always look at collaborative practices that we're mixing the best of all worlds. We're mixing the best of the mediation world and we're mixing the best of the litigation world and it's coming together so that we can do really focused work on goals and interests so that we have lasting agreements and not something that people are going to go and argue about in a couple of years or even a couple of months for that matter. Uh, getting the training, understanding the principles behind it, what is allowed, what's not allowed. I think it's really fundamental. I've always said it's a great process simply because lawyers actually get to do what they went to law school for rather than doing the care and feeding of a court system. So I think it's a great way to get training. The other thing, I, the feedback I've gotten from lawyers who do the training, it actually makes them better litigators, right? Oh, by far. They start thinking about the issues differently and they're saying, well, really, what's your 
clients underlying goals here what's their concern so you really think through a file differently rather than horse trading well Russ I think you also have to look at who's sitting on the bench right now most of the right. judges sitting on the bench have collaborative training they right. understand and they're looking for that in their litigators that they actually have settlement in mind and not arguing and a lot of them will kick clients out of the courtroom they'll say go do mediation try collaborative training uh, and come back to us. Usually they come back with an agreement with a dispute resolution clause. They haven't yeah. even read it. So the judge says, you have to do this before I'm going to hear your case. But that's a great point. All right. So we enter into contract when we uh, do this process, the participation agreement. David, what do we need to know? Well, I think the first thing people need to know is if you haven't signed a CP agreement, you are not doing collaborative practice, period. One cannot be done without the other. The agreement is fundamental. And I see this fundamental in particular because it incorporates and really brings to the fore all the expectations that you want your client to have about the collaborative model, including the onus to act in good faith. And getting it signed at the outset of a file is important because the scope and nature of the communications you will have with other counsel and other professionals will be different in a collaborative model than in a traditional you know, litigation model or lawyer-assisted negotiations. One of the things that I like to do in my agreements is include a schedule that specifically authorizes the collaborative lawyers to use their discretion in deciding to disclose information discussed between the professionals to different members of the team or to your client. And that's a really important feature of collaborative work is being able to use discretion in terms of when information is shared and how much. So as the agreements are so important, get them signed. The, the thing I love about it is there's a, there's a provision that says we're not going to take advantage of each other's mistakes, right? Yeah. So when you're litigating, you always have your guard up. You're worried somebody's going to stab you in the back or pull the carpet out from your feet. In the collaborative setting, you can let it rip, right? So we got the number wrong on the end. <laughs> deal. We're going to fix it, right? Figuratively, not, not literally. Just Well, we're not going to spend six months deciding whether we should amend uh, a mistake that was made. It's, it's assumed everybody's working towards a common good. But Absolutely. Thank you, David. Family and financial neutrals. Uh, Jonathan, I've just hired... I'm separating my wife and I have lawyers. Why the hell do we need to bring more people into uh, into uh, the business of our separation? What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the collaborative approach requires a really big mind shift for people who are used to litigation because um, you're actually growing your team by adding a financial and a, a family professional. They can do a lot of the work that the lawyers would do otherwise, um, but at uh, um, uh, reduced cost because the parties are both paying towards the uh, neutrals fees. And it's always helpful having a neutral who can take a step back, look at the big picture and say, hey, this is what I think about the situation. Um, so the the financial professionals are really, really helpful because they can do a lot of the um, uh, calculations to your net family property statements. Uh, they gather all the financial information about things like pensions. Um, they do the support calculations, and this saves a lot of time and money for clients because you have that specialized person doing that work. Um, and one of the things that I found super helpful for clients uh, with respect to financial neutral is their ability to help foresee the future and say, okay, when you're separated, 
this is what you need to think about from a budgetary point of view. This is how much money you're going to have. This is the kind of house you can afford. This is the kind of mortgage that you could have every month. Um, and that really helps the parties um, visualize their goals in a more realistic way um, and, and recognize that, you know, uh, separation is a financial decision as well as an emotional and legal decision um, and having an expert help you through those finances can really be helpful. The family neutrals play a, a very different but also important role. Um, if I was involved in a team, I would help with the parenting plan, um, which again, lawyers could do fine, but why not have someone um, who's an expert in parenting and uh, you know, child development, that kind of thing, working on your parenting plan with the clients. Both clients are contributing to the family professional's fees so that it's cheaper to have a family professional involved doing that kind of work. But also, you know, the most expensive piece of any separation is conflict. And if you can have a family professional there to give advice on uh, positive communication versus negative, how to resolve conflicts, how to make proposals to each other, um, and, and guiding the whole process in an amicable way, you're going to end up saving your client uh, a ton of money and um, it will be less stressful for them. And also, um, you know, just to have a full team is um, very uh, uh, important. Not I was just ask the you, what's the full team, right? A you full know, team would be two lawyers. lawyers talk about it, but yeah. what does that mean when you say, okay, we're going to get a full team involved? So it, it, it usually means like two lawyers, one for each client, a financial and a family professional. Sometimes it also involves other professionals like business valuators, um, pension valuators, uh, um, appraisers for, for getting values of the house. It could, could involve a whole bunch of different people, but and usually it means lawyers and- Those financial professionals, sometimes lawyers, that's like their business model, right? I'm gonna do the financial statement and charge the clients. Yeah. What you're talking about is one person does a joint brief for the whole team. So they're saving time and expense. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And they're they're like uh, gathering all the information. Um, if, if you have two lawyers doing that, they can do that fine. Don't get me wrong. But if one person's missing someone, then they have to call the other person who then calls the client, who then gets the information. And then it goes back to the first lawyer. If you've got a financial person doing that, they're collecting all that information directly. Uh, for the team. And um, uh, I do, I do want to mention too, the power of a full team is not just that the clients get all the support that they need, but the team gets the support they need because, you know, working with uh, separating families can be really stressful for the professionals involved. And having a team approach means you get not just support uh, for the clients, but also for each other as a, as a professional. It's great working as a team. Otherwise, I would be doing this work as a mediator in isolation. I can speak from my own experience. It's definitely not as fun or as rewarding or as easy to do that work on your own when you don't have a team present. And you don't need children to have a fine uh, family professional. They can help in other ways. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, I help a lot with communication when there's high conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said before, conflict is the most expensive part in um, in separation and anything you can do to reduce conflict will save the clients a ton of money and a ton of uh, emotional stress in the long run. All right. So we, go ahead, Carrie. 
Sorry, Rush. You know, I was going to say the one thing I've always really enjoyed about having the family professional is their ability to assess the client's readiness for process, for any process, whether it be a court process, the collaborative process, any process. But, you know, we always have one person that's always lagging a little bit behind. And I think they really help a lot moving that person into what we're doing and how we're doing it and getting those emotions in check. That's why I love a family professional. Well, the neutrals also help keep the lawyer's emotions in check too, right? They'll call a timeout. That is a true statement. They'll say, okay, let's debrief on what just happened there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a good question too about family professionals dealing with children's interests. And uh, I do want to note that one of the roles that I play often is when when parents have older kids, you know, preteens or teenagers, the family professional also uh, get involved in getting the children's views and preferences about, you know, a parenting schedule and any other issues that are important to the kids and bring that to the table and into the process, which can be a really helpful role that family professionals can play. All right. So we talked about the participation agreement. We talked about the full team. Now, I guess it's going to be an extended team role of experts and reports. This is going to be yours, Brian. We also had a question coming that just came in about um, retainers and how do you pay for all this? How's that shared? Maybe you can touch upon that a little bit too, Brian. Yeah, I just answered that question, uh, okay. the question and answer, but it to be, it's a good good question. And the, the answer is that each uh, party retains their own lawyer, so has a contractual relationship with their own lawyer. And both parties have a contractual relationship with the shared family professional and the shared financial professional. But all four professionals are independent of one another and have uh, separate retainer agreements. So I would go ahead, Carrie. Sorry, Brian. I just wanted to add in there. A lot of times what I will do as the financial neutral is I will ask the clients if they have a joint line of credit. It's a great way to pay for your neutrals and even your legal counsel. You can keep they can keep track of what the cost of the process is. And it's also really easy for us to reconcile at the end. Or oftentimes one party is writing the check to the other party, right? Yeah. That party is going to finance the process and we agree to divide it at the end of the process and adjust for the fees that were paid. There's simple solutions to the payment problem, I think. Absolutely. Sorry, sorry Brian, we keep cutting you off. That's okay. I was asked about experts and, uh, you know, the vast majority of clients over the years that I've dealt with, and that's hundreds and hundreds of families, they just want to get things resolved. They just want some help, some facts, some information. And so in the collaborative process, we need to sometimes get um, experts involved, but it's not a competition among the experts. Usually what happens is we bring in experts jointly. So for example, if there's someone has a business and we need a certified business evaluator, then the parties will jointly retain uh, one person to come in and look at the business and really give a neutral objective opinion as to the range of value uh, as to the business. And they'll come to a, uh, a full meeting with the clients and discuss their thoughts about the value of the business, explain th their reasoning behind it. And sometimes they have to make adjustments based on information they get from the clients at those meetings. But it's, it's not about competing uh, experts uh, battling one out or, uh, against the other. 
It's about bringing the clients the information they need to uh, resolve their issues. So we'll have experts evaluating businesses, pensions, uh, property, farms, assets, boats, uh, stock options. That's a very complicated uh, valuation process. And so you can bring an expert in uh, for that purpose. And usually that information is, is kept in the process uh, it's not brought into the litigation unless the parties agree that it can be. So experts are used as needed. Keep your questions coming in, audience. We have somebody talking about bringing jelly beans. We've got another one. <laughs> Basically, it's what do you do about a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? These lawyers who say they're collaborative, but they're not. We're going to get to all these, but keep them coming in. Runaway train, an ointment for high conflict litigation. We've yeah. talked about this runaway train forever. We've got programs on it. We're going to include links. It's, I guess the idea here, Carrie, is you take these crazy cases out of court and you bring them into a collaborative setting to solve them. Is that what's going on? Absolutely. You know, there's so many times when we hear about people going through litigation fatigue, where they've just been going on that litigation train for so long and they just can't seem to get off. One of a great way of doing that is pulling your court matter into the collaborative process. It takes people into a different frame of mind when they're discussing things. We're off of positions, we're into goals and interests. We're into a very settlement focused in which we're kind of putting them in a room and saying, okay, let's talk this through. Let's get to where we need to be. The only way you're gonna to get to an acceptable and sustainable agreement is if your clients are actually part of the process and not just being thrown into a process. So taking them out of court, getting them in collaborative, that's that done for them. Love it. And you know, I've, I've got clients who've been in court for two years. Mm -hmm. I explained collaborative practice. They said, nobody ever told me this was an option. Do this thought, this is how they resolve disputes. It's really quite sad because they've now spent a hundred grand. Um, yeah. And it's just terrible. All right, golden goose. What are we talking about here? Family-run businesses. Uh, Family-run businesses, Russ, the golden goose. Everybody talks about when we're going through this process, you have a family-run business. There's so many reasons to go collaborative. Number one, it is a nice private process. I know if I have a business and I have competitors and I find out my competitor is going through a messy divorce and they're in court, I want to run down to that courthouse. I'm going to slap down my credit card and go, give me all the information. Because I can find out all sorts of great information about my competitor. So keeping it in the family, uh, in the collaborative process really retains that privacy. So the goose is the family-run business. And the goose is the business. the business. Keep producing income for the family after well, the divorce. Because divorces can destroy businesses, right? A hundred percent. And so we will, don't want to destroy what gave this family wealth. And so the end of the day is what our goal is, is to let's make sure everybody can come up with that settlement that keeps that golden goose laying those wonderful eggs and giving the family the wealth that they require. Remember, if, if one of the party owns that business and the other person saying, give me half of that business, but we've just destroyed all the covenants of the business and the business has to close, how's support going to get paid now? So we need to get creative. Oftentimes there's adult children working in the business as well, right? It's not just husband well, or partners. And this is where we may want to bring in corporate counsel. 
and let's talk about succession planning for that business. If it's really meant for the kids to have something going forward, we want to be able to develop something in our separation agreements that can go into about the corporate structure, what that's going to look like, what that succession planning is going to look like. Let's marry documents together so that they can't be changed in the future. Remember, wills can be changed. The separation agreement cannot be. Yeah, great point. And legacy planning, and if they're going to continue on the business, what do you do with new partners who uh, people are repartnered? We've got a whole program on this, but let's go to impasse. Uh, I think this is yours. Is that right, Brian? Yeah, impasse is when parties get stuck and they can't easily uh, resolve an issue and they hit a wall. And that is normal in any uh, negotiation process. And so that's one of the first things I always do is normalize that for the clients and let them know that that, that might happen. It's likely to happen. And uh, But when you're in the collaborative process, the advantage is you have a full team of professionals. So what we do is we will come together as a team and discuss where the clients are at and what's causing the impasse. And uh, we'll look at various ways that we can overcome the impasse. And, and uh, maybe the matter has to go back to the family professional to have a deeper dive into the underlying interests and goals of the party. Maybe there's more financial information that the financial professional can provide. Maybe we need to really um, uh, get some unexpert opinion brought in as to whatever the issue is and discuss that further. So we brainstorm together as a professional team uh, to, to find a way through the impasse. And, you know, 86% of collaborative cases result in a full settlement. And so we are able to get over impasse because of the team working together. You're on mute. I know, I know. Oftentimes, um, impasse is some underlying issue, right? That hasn't been resolved. And the family professional can dig that up. And I find if you normalize impasse, right? This is a normal part of collaborative practice uh, and deal, how, deal with methods to deal with it, like create methods to deal with it. It's quite effective because usually the cases settle very quickly after you get through the impasse. Uh, but time for a poll. Let's see what our audience is thinking. Um, what do you think the most difficult part of selling collaborative practices? So we'll give everybody a chance to answer that. And then we're going to actually talk about selling CP. So I think you mean uh, selling a collaborative practice to potential clients. Is that what you mean? Or even the other lawyer or uh, your colleagues. But mainly, oh yeah. client, usually it's the client sitting across from your desk. Initially. Right. Yeah. yeah and then you no, got to get, get the other spouse on board and they may not hire a collaborative lawyer, but okay, let's see what our audience thinks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Missing the spouse, 44%, cost 20%, other lawyers 16%, your client 20%. Okay. Well, if it's my client, I just tell them this is the way it is. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is the way we're going to start, but how do we do this, David? How do we sell CP? Well, it really does start with you, right? And it starts from that initial consult or conversation you have with your client, right? It's incumbent on you to introduce them to a model of dispute resolution that they might not be familiar with and to make them feel comfortable with what that process looks like. 
One of the ways I like to do that is by sending an introductory letter to all my clients, which talks about processes and talks about who I am as someone who is interested in seeking solutions and resolving conflict. And it's an opportunity to invite your client to identify their own values, which maybe they've never really thought about, and identify their own goals. And you can then use those values and goals as an anchor point throughout your period of time and working with that person to remind them of what brought them to you, to remind them of where they hope to go and be, and then link those back to the collaborative process. And in terms of speaking to the other person, because sometimes, you know, you're not rarely, do, is there already a collaborative process ongoing? Sometimes you have to make that initial contact with the other side. I think it's a good idea to send that initial letter, not in some type of pro forma way where, you know, my client prefers negotiation to litigation because everyone says that and it's not always actually meant. Um, but take that as an opportunity to seek solutions, invite input, talk about process, offer some names of other collaborative practitioners, right, who are taking on clients. Avoid the instinct to make accusations or repeat narrative that's going to entrench positions. Um, and sometimes, if you're feeling particularly spicy, maybe identify some of their needs, right? Identify some of the things that will make them feel a bit heard and seen. And then you have buy-in. And then they're going to go have that referral or that consult with a collaborative professional who you know is going to come on the file and, you know, create a really engaging and successful process. So it that's really how I like to approach that whole idea of selling, you know, collaborative practice. Spicy. I like that. <laughs> Let's run our next poll, see what our audience is thinking. And thank you, everybody, for sending in your questions. We're answering them as they come in, and we've got lots more that we're going to get to. So who should be responsible for promoting collaborative practice in Ontario? Uh, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute because I think, uh, you know, I've worked with other collaborative practice groups. This is hard to promote, right? Because if you're promoting collaborative practice, people don't, people aren't searching collaborative practice. They don't put that into the Google machine when they're going through the divorce. They don't even have that lexicon in their mind. So uh, this has been a, an issue that uh, local and international uh, practice groups have been struggling with. And, um, Let's see what our audience thinks, and then we're going to get into some more substance here. Lawyers, 30%. Other professionals, 9%. OECP, IECP, 4%. Law Society of Ontario, good answer. Uh, local practice groups, provincial and federal government, 17%. Certainly, I think this should fall on government. You know, local practice groups don't have the budget or the expertise to do that. You know, Ontario had that, you know, Good Things Grow in Ontario campaign, mm -hmm. effective. Tourism Ontario, also very effective. Divorce Act is federal legislation. The federal, you know, the government of Canada has a duty to um, uh, help here. And it get, it's going to alleviate the court system, right? It's going to help us with the backlog. Um, what would you guys think of these uh, poll results? Carrie? I think it should be all of the above. I think everybody should be promoting CP in Ontario, but I do think the law society, the government, and our provincial and national groups absolutely should be taking the wheel on this and getting things moving. There's just only so much you can do at a local level. 
Um, but the more people that know about collaborative practice, I think the better it is. We need to get people to understand that the TV is not how family law works. And let's go to the president of the IACP, Mr. <laughs> Elbray. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, when, when uh, the government embraced family mediation, it really made it mainstream. Everyone uh, started to embrace mediation and, and, uh, and knows about it and supports it because uh, the government has um, uh, funds it and promotes it on their websites and so on. And that's the level of support that we need uh, in, in uh, this province. In other states, some states have passed laws uh, recognizing collaborative practice called the Unified Collaborative Law. And uh, that has made a big difference in uh, the expansion of collaborative practice. So the Law Society needs strong voices who will push the government to support collaborative practice. So I know you're running as a venture, Russ, and I really am so thrilled that we're going to have a, a collaborative practice professional as a venture promoting collaborative practice. Well, the time. election is going to be voting starts soon. Talk to your venture candidates, ask them what they think about this issue and um, make your choice. But thank you, Brian. Okay, let's get into audience Q&A. And we're kind of, we kind of shuffled these together by category. We're going to talk about process. Um, so David, how does collaborative practice differ from mediation? Uh, well, um, they are different um, in the scope of the professionals involved. Um, in the collaborative model, both parties have lawyers who assist them through the process. That's not always the case in mediation. Um, and uh, to pick up on a theme that I think Carrie mentioned earlier, I think what collaborative practice does is it brings together the best elements of mediation into a model that involves other professionals, right? And so you don't always have access to a financial neutral in mediation. Um, sometimes mediators have varying degrees of skill and knowledge with respect to family law, with respect to finances and family dynamics, you know, and that can be a lot of work to put on people um, searching out the right professionals at first instance. And the benefit of the collaborative model is we bring those professionals together through our own networks. And so you have a quality of expertise and knowledge um, that is really deep. Excellent. Thank you for that. Okay, we're going to jump ahead to what are the best referrals for you? So, Brian? Well, my there's some confusion out there that uh, uh, that um, collaborative practice is only for those parties who are uh, so amicable and come into your office holding hands. And that is just not true. Collaborative practice is a fantastic, robust process that helps resolve conflict. So it, I need it, uh, parties who have a conflict, who have issues, who, who need help getting their, their matter resolved. Now, the, the parties that, um, there's a very small percentage of parties that just want to do battle. And those are the ones that need to go to court and, and uh, duke it out for years and years on end. That's, that's a, maybe a 5%, 3% of the population. The majority of people just want some help to get their matter resolved in a timely way and cost effectively. So anybody with uh, family law issues that is willing to come to the negotiation table is a good referral for me. All right, so um, 
keep your questions coming in, audience members. They've been excellent. Uh, there was, let's go to uh, intimate partner violence. So is collaborative divorce appropriate where there's been intimate partner violence? Uh, does the training include recognizing power imbalances? A very important question. Jonathan, can you help us with this one? For sure. Um, I would say yes. Uh, generally, uh, collaborative divorce is appropriate for either high conflict or uh, families where there has been violence, uh, including course, course of control. Doesn't make those cases easy, but um, I think having a team approach on um, those cases can be really, really helpful. And um, the, the training does include a little bit about um, family violence and recognizing power imbalances, but I would recommend uh, a couple of things. If you are gonna have a, a case like this, always bring in a family uh, professional, a family neutral. Um, and second of all, get yourself some more training. There are excellent courses through the Ontario Association for Family Mediation on that, that are open to everybody. You don't have to be a mediator to take that training. Um, the uh, Family Peacemakers Conference that happens every year and is coming up in May always has an excellent uh, day, usually a full day of uh, training on the subject of screening for power imbalances and, and family violence. Um, so I'd recommend that, but uh, generally the team approach is good um, and better than say going to court where you know uh, your um, process might be dragged on for years um, instead of getting to a quick resolution with people there to support both the victim of the power imbalance um, as well as the uh, the person who is engaged in course of control behavior, having the their lawyer and the family neutral and the financial neutral all on the same side, trying to uh, correct that behavior and, and manage it can be really, really helpful. Okay, I'm just gonna review some of the questions we've answered because I think it would be helpful uh, if we we uh, spoke about them in, in a setting. So Brian, I'm a lawyer in Ontario. Do I only need to take the course? Um, and then can I start doing collaborative practice? So once you get training, can you start being a collaborative lawyer? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, it's like any uh, professional practice you need to continue to hone your skills and continue to take uh, training and uh, um, courses, attend conferences like the, um, the upcoming Ontario one and IACP's International Forum is coming to Ontario in October. That's a, a great learning opportunity as well. So you, yes, once you have taken the course, you can start practicing. Uh, but one thing that I would really recommend is that if you haven't taken mediation training, that is really helpful yeah. to collaborate, being a collaborative practice professional. So mediation training would be the next thing to do. And then you just uh, join a practice group and because those practice groups have great uh, opportunities to hone your skills and continue to grow as a professional. And once you work on a couple of teams and you get known and people refer you work, it snowballs after that. Uh, yeah. When that came in, once the separating partners have their own lawyers, uh, who finds the neutrals? Jonathan? Um, usually the lawyers uh, will reach out to me and ask um, uh, if, if I want to join their team. Um, and usually they'll have a conversation with the 
clients about that. Sometimes they'll send a bunch of names to the clients and say, hey, you guys should pick one and then we'll reach out to them. Um, so I would say mostly it's the lawyers. What about you, Carrie? Uh, you know what? I think it depends where the file is coming from. I know so many times I get clients coming to me firsthand and I'm setting up the team and where I'm saying this is a family professional. You can talk to if they're not a good fit. I have others. Here are a couple of lawyers I'd like you guys to talk to. Again, if they're not a good fit, happy to find somebody else that fits for you. Um, but I think it really depends on where they're coming in from. The collaborative files come from financial professionals, family professionals, and legal counsel. It's not a one-way street. No. And, you know, pre-pandemic, it usually be geographic, right? Who's in the community that can help. Now we do a lot of it by Zoom. Uh, I know that the lawyers usually try to match professionals up with the uh, clients, just in terms of their personalities. But, um, okay, so let's go to a couple questions up. What strategies can be used to overcome impasse in a collaborative practice? I think David lost his internet, so we're just going to jump ahead a little bit. So, Brian, <laughs> can you uh, take care of that one? Oh, there are so many strategies that we use. So, first of all, the the team will come together and and discuss what's going on and try to understand the dynamics uh, uh, of the negotiations and of the couple, and and then they'll look at what could be appropriate. So, sometimes uh, a strategy is the family professional will meet with one person. <laughs> with their lawyer in attendance, and then they'll go to meet the other person uh, with their lawyer present. And that sort of shuttle diplomacy can sometimes work. And likewise, the financial might do that sort of a re regime. Sometimes it's the financial and family without lawyers present that is meeting with the clients individually or meeting with them together, but without lawyers. Uh, maybe they need to bring in an expert Maybe they just need to park issues and let them simmer and go on to other issues that are more easily resolved. And then you come back to the difficult ones and voila, the answer's there and it's, it's easy, easy to resolve things. So the, there's a lot of strategizing that the, the team can do to overcome impasse. And that's the beautiful thing about collaborative practice is that nobody wants to say, oh, you've reached an impasse, go to court because if the matter goes to court, we're all out of a job, right? And so we really work hard uh, to find a way through, through impasse. And we do that by working together as a professional team. All right, let's jump ahead a couple more questions. How do you deal with opposing counsel who does not want to proceed with a full team? Brian? Well, you know, one of the things I've done is uh, if they're reluctant to have a of a family professional on the case, I'll say, well, you know, you you might be right. I'm not sure, <laughs> which is a lie because I know that it's always helpful. <laughs> family. But I, I, I play along with it. Why don't we just have a meeting with a family professional? Or maybe you and your client should meet with this family professional just to feel it out, just to see whether you think they would be helpful. And every time they come back and say, yeah, well, yeah, my client really loved meeting the family professional. And uh, same with the financial professional is, is get them involved in the process of getting the client on board with using their services. Get, so that's what I do. Because uh, I, I never do um, 
I, you know, I have many years ago done a case without neutrals, uh, but I, I always now use uh, both a family and a financial professional. And I just tell them, this is what we need to do. But uh, if the opposing lawyer is uh, unwilling, that's all. I'll just get them into the office of the family professional or financial professional, and they'll do the uh, persuading for me. When you have a full team, the lawyer, the role of the lawyer changes, right? You're sort of you're wearing the hat of a general contractor at that point. So what I what I tell opposing counsels, I don't want to do the financial statement, right? Carrie could do it for half the price it costs me. It's going to save our clients money. Uh, I don't want to draft the parenting agreement. Jonathan can meet with the parents at home and get a draft agreement ready for It's just more efficient just to have the full team. That's the way I sell it to counsel who are re reluctant to get involved. Um, I think it sells itself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a question here that I think uh, maybe we should generally answer, which is sure. that um how, you know in if you're in your geographic area you don't have neutrals uh how can you get neutrals involved and how do you find out about neutrals and, and that's one of the beautiful things about uh, <laughs> the pandemic if there was ever a silver lining to that uh that period of time what the silver lining was that we all started to use zoom and mm -hmm. uh, work online and so uh there's uh, no need uh, for someone to be geographically close by for them to participate in the, the case. Uh, one of our colleagues, Bev LeMay, uh, lives in the Toronto area, but about half of her practice is in Sudbury and has been for many years long before the pandemic began. And she just appears in Sudbury on Zoom. And so the way to find out about collaborative professionals is uh, to go to the, uh, the Ontario Association of Collaborative Professionals, and they have links to all the practice groups in Ontario. There's, I think there's 19 practice groups. So you can go to their websites and everyone is designated as a, a lawyer, a family professional, or a financial professional. So yeah. you can find someone to help you out. David, what's your take on this uh, question we have up here? Well, it's so uh, personally relevant to me because I live in an area where we don't have a vibrant collaborative group. Um, and, you know, there's been some great suggestions offered. I think one that has worked well is looking to other, you know, collaborative file. And I think more generally, uh, you need to be someone that other lawyers want to work with. And if you are someone that other lawyers want to work with, you will create a sort of self-fulfilling rationale for why a collaborative model works with you in it. Good point. All right, so let's talk about selling CP. Um, Brian, how do you convince the other spells to take a collaborative uh, route? I know you got a really cool way of doing it by designing a, an email for your client that they hand off. How's that work? Yeah, well, one of the, the keys to it is talking to your own client about their spouse and finding out what's important to their spouse. Uh, too often, especially lawyers, we don't find out about the other party and we really need to carve out some time to get to know what the wants and needs and worries and concerns are of the other party who's not in the room with you. And then what we do is we'll write an email 
and it's an email to my own client explaining the benefits of collaborative practice uh, and why I recommend it to them. But it also addresses why collaborative practice would meet the needs of their spouse. So you found out what their, their spouse's concerns are. Let's say their spouse's concerns are parenting uh, issues. They're concerned about the children. So then you can say, you've told me that your spouse is worried about the children being harmed through this divorce process. And that's why your spouse should really consider using the collaborative process because you're going to work with a family professional who will be able to assist you to develop a, a parenting plan that's in the best interest of the children. So you send this email with maybe, I, I always put some names and uh, email addresses and websites of other collaboratively trained lawyers because I explained, look, not every lawyer is trained collaboratively. Some lawyers take every court, every case to court. So you need to find the right kind of a lawyer. So I put links to our practice group website and the IACP website, and also links to some other uh, lawyers that I, I, I've had successful cases with. I send the email to my client and then they pass it on to their spouse. And for some reason, it works. There's not a, you know, a defensive response to an email that's been addressed to um, my client. Uh, whereas in the old days, I used to send a letter addressing it to the other party. And when they would get that letter on my fancy letterhead, uh, they would uh, just become defensive and think, oh, this is a tactic to, to really uh, take me to the cleaners. I'm not going to do this. It's only going to benefit my spouse. Ah, you know, there's this defensive uh, negative response. But sending the email to my own client, which they share, just doesn't get that defensive response. And it leads to more cases. We forget, you know, a lawyer's letter showing up at somebody's house is a pretty intimidating experience, right? Like it's, it's like an incoming bomb, man. It's like a fight or flight. But if you have, you know, if you go to your spouse, say, you know, my lawyer's a really nice guy. He wrote me this letter about the process and you hand it over. You, you take away that fear, right? Right, right. Yeah. But let's face it, Russ, a lawyer's letter is like getting the brown envelope from the CRA. You right. just don't want to open it. That's right. Is this an audit or is this a payment remittance form? Okay. How much do I want taxes? We have a poll. How does collaborative practice fit into your audience? You know, we have an audience out here. Let's see what they're thinking. 10%, uh, 20 uh, fit. 50% of my practice, 10, or 100% of my practice, three. Uh, I would like to learn more about the training. 50%, uh, well, you're in the right place. We're going to talk about that right now. Let's go to um, slide 51. Talk a little bit about training, and then we're going to bring this train into the station. So, Brian, um, can you talk a little bit about this? And what, what does our audience need to know about training? Yeah, we uh, the the trainers of Ontario uh, sat together on, on Zoom and uh, we created a curriculum that we said this is what we we need uh, all uh, professionals to to learn to be collaborative professionals and it's it's a very robust uh, um, uh, curriculum and um, 
in the old days, we made some of it optional and it just, we found that didn't work. We really needed everybody to have the the whole uh, five days, five, in the old days, it was five full days of in-person training. Now we do it on Zoom, uh, broken up uh, in, in smaller chunks. But uh, so there is a curriculum. And uh, if you go to the uh, o Ontario Association of Collaborative Professionals website, there is a calendar there that lists all of the trainings. There's, I believe, four training groups. Uh, we have one. We're the best group, of course. <laughs> but there, there are four groups. So humble. All, so humble. All excellent professionals. I'll have lots of experience and are uh, offering courses at a variety of times during the, the year. So one of the criteria you might look at is whether you'd prefer it to be in person or on Zoom. Ours are on Zoom, others are in person, uh, and our, some are um, longer days. So that might be better for, for you than ours, which are half days. So yeah, here's a, a slide uh, about our uh, our upcoming training, and uh, uh, we've offered uh, uh, a discount code of 10%. So what you do is uh, when you go to the website cptraining.ca, uh, you can click uh, to register, and there's a spot where you can insert uh, the code uh, to get a 10% discount, and that code is Family Law Now Live. And that will be available until uh, April 7th because we'd love to get some people signed up and uh, have an opportunity to take this training. That website, cptraining.ca, has a full description of the training. It goes through the curriculum and it has a, a great explanation of what you'll be experiencing during this course. So if you're 50% of the or a large group of you said you wanted to learn more about the training, just go to the website, click on the uh, tab for introductory training, and you can learn more about what we're offering in our courses. Shannon's back. That means we're close to the top of the hour. Five seconds or less, Brian. How many cases that are collaborative settle? 86% of cases settle. And uh, of the 14% that don't settle in the process, some of those have partial settlement. Uh, less than 1% actually ever go to trial. Uh, because they're able to find some other process to resolve them and, and keep them out of, out of the court proceeding. Back to you, Shannon. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, Carrie, Brian, and David for joining Russell on the panel today. And thank you everyone in our audience for joining. Uh, we know we have a lot of family lawyers in the audience today. So just wanted to mention this survey that professors Birnbaum, Ball, and Houston are undertaking currently um, to study the the pandemic um, and the effect of that on the practice of family law and the use of virtual family court proceedings, including questions about the experiences and views of the family lawyers about policies um, and how that should be adopted going forward. So um, please, um, if you have the time to fill this out, um, if you'd like to share your views. And I want to thank again, all of our panelists for being here to share their knowledge and experience. And also just want to extend our gratitude to all of our audience members. We hope we have the opportunity to host you again soon.